Welcome to City Life Church Podcast. Our desire is that all may come to know Christ and fulfill their purpose in life. We welcome you to head over to our website for more information. God bless you and enjoy the message. How's everybody doing today? Yeah, that's good. Is anybody doing great? Yeah, all right. That's not bad. Before I start, I just want to pray get into to this, what I'm going to share this morning. We're going to talk about Generation X, but there's the crux of what I want to get to. I almost want to hurry to get to it, but I want to go through some things because I, I believe this is important. But God has given me something to share this morning that I believe will be very important and powerful for us. So Lord, I pray as we dive into some of the things this morning, we're going to get into your word. We're going to look at some things that you placed in there for our benefit so that we could draw from, so that we could go in and we could graze in your word and we could find things that we can grab a hold of and say, you know what, that's something that needs to happen in my life. There's something here that I need to take a little bit stronger look at. Lord, I pray as we look into your word today, you will reveal to us the things for each one of us personally that you want to do, that you want to reach a portion of our life that maybe we have yet to allow you to adjust or change. God, I just pray for every person here that we would be open to hearing from you this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. Well, the series that we're in is Generation Influence. This is the fourth of the series that I have been working on. Last week, obviously, we didn't have service here, but God's still, you know, he's still around, right? He's still in each one of us. Well, today I wanted to talk just a little bit about Generation X, And that's those of you that fit in that category if you're born after 1965 and probably up to 1980, somewhere in there. Anybody in that category? Generation X? So we have a few. We have have a few. Some of you are not wanting to admit that you're that old. Some of you are obviously older than that. I am a little older than that. But Generation X really is kind of my, where I grew up in that generation. So a lot of these things I relate to very well because I was on the tail end of the baby boomers. Again, the conversation needs to be in this generation influence that we're talking about really needs to be about discovering the strengths of the generations and how we can work together in accomplishing the things that God has for us and understanding how important each generation is in our life as we live it. And uh, the challenges that we face in the different generations, we've seen those come and go, uh, but we need to focus on our strengths, the strengths that we bring and understanding that. And I've talked about this before, not focus, let's take the focus off of the weaknesses or things that we saw that were negatives and say, hey, what are the strengths that God's placed in this? And working across the generations, building those bridges and working together to see God's kingdom extended in the community as we reach the lost together and working arm in arm and doing that together. So I believe that's God's heart, amen? So Generation X, Followed the baby boomers, and and like I said, that's kind of where I landed, and then the one on the other side is the millennials, which we're going to get to. That's kind of a fun generation to talk about, and I've even heard people say, I don't like to be called a millennial. Well, okay, whatever, so that's just an indication a little bit maybe of that generation, So, uh, but we'll get there. The Generation X is often referred to as maybe like the middle child or that generation between the boomers and the millennials. It's kind of that that place where there was a shift that happened in that generation. And I remember, and I, one of the things that I remember was a term that was often referred to as the latchkey children. 
How many remember that? And maybe some of you are the latchkey kids to where your parents, because that was kind of the time where all of a sudden, and it kind of caught a lot of people off guard. There was things that happened. All of a sudden, mom and dad are both working. There was a need for that. There was an economy was kind of in that place of like, oh man, we need, to, we need a little more income in the house. So you've got both. And then also at the same time, there wasn't really the preparation for now you've got daycares everywhere to take care of these kids. And there wasn't really that going on as well. So people were scrambling. So what they just did was, well, when your kids, after school, you go home, you go home to an empty house. So you, the latchkey kids, so you, go, you have your own key, you get in and you just hang out and play with things that don't exist now, but they, now that everything else is a lot different and stuff, but both the parents participated in the workforce, and it was kind of that, this wasn't necessarily the case for most believers, hopefully, but kind of that MTV generation, where you were kind of, you turn on the TV and watch whatever these dance videos or whatever they are. I never got into that particular channel, but there's this cultural influence that, that came through the, the Gen X, which the, the type of music all of a sudden changed. It was kind of the rock and roll era back in the boomer era, and now you were coming up with things like grunge and hip-hop and stuff that the traditionalist generation and even some baby boomers are cringing at, <laughs> grunge. And that's what I was thinking. I was just like, man, it, there was this band called Guns N' Roses, and I'm like, that is not music. I'm sorry. <laughs> that, uh, that's just my opinion. I'm like, that is not music. But... There was something that drew that generation to that and the hip-hop, whole hip-hop thing and all, all of that kind of stuff. And then you had the independent films and all the things that were going on at the time. And so, and I, I just remember now, of course, because back then, instead of when you're eating breakfast or eating your cereal, whatever it is you're eating, now you're going to be on your phone, you're going to be on your iPad, whatever device, you're going to be on that. But in those days, I very well remember our entertainment was reading the cereal box. How many? Yeah. You put that cereal box right in front of you, and you would read it. And you would turn around, and you would read that. And, you would, and if there was some little something in the cereal box, I mean, you'd be pulling that out, reading it, whatever it was. That was the form of getting some sort of information. And it's so different than today, because kids are like, reading the cereal box? Are you kidding me? But there was something about doing that. So there's about 45 million Gen X's, Gen Xers that are right now that are that are live in the United States, over 60% of them went to college, uh, so there was a, that need and I, to educate and, and become part of uh, the working world. And I, I also remember the big thing, certainly I remember, was pinball machines. Man, 7-Eleven. I, with my friends, we'd go to 7-Eleven or the bowling alley that used to be here in Lacey. And some of you remember that. That doesn't exist, hasn't existed for years. We'd go play pinball or foosball. Those were the entertainments. Pac-Man machines. And then at home, you, if you were fortunate enough to have the game Pong, oh, yeah. yeah, it was just back and forth. Pong, Pong, Pong. And that was like the excitement. I mean, like, wow, this is the most incredible game ever. Pong. <laughs> and now kids would probably put that down in two seconds if they started playing that. So... It's interesting what stimulates the brain uh, over time. I, I remember, you know, after school, you would jump on your bike, and you'd go. And you would stay out as long as you're home by dark. And there was no way to communicate. You just went. You hung out with your friends. You went to the school, the park, the wherever. You rode on the streets. You, there was no such thing as bike helmets back then, which there probably should have been. But because I remember some crash and burns, and my brother and I had those. 
And we even did stupid things like we would get both on the same bike and we'd put our feet on top of each other and pedal as fast as we could. And we crashed and burned. And we had my leg totally ripped apart. And I, I just remember those times. Fun times, ridiculous. You'd be jumping over things and ramps. And, and you know, kids probably don't do that anymore, except for those, the bike things that they do. I know they do all that stuff, but as far as like entertaining yourself. But yeah, you would just go and you would have fun. TV was like the last thing on your list that you would ever think of doing. It was, man, we're going to go outside and we're going to have fun. So that was the whole idea. And that the Gen Xers, they, they end up becoming managers and supervisors as they get into the job world and workforce. And because they're, they're really considered really good at bringing culture together, bringing generations together and working well together. And so they did a pretty good job of doing that. It was interesting. I, wrote, I read this one uh, writer that was talking about Gen Xers, and they said, Gen Xers are doing the quiet work of keeping America from sucking. <laughs> okay, that's really realistic in the sense of, I remember preaching a message about that, so we don't want to be suckers. We don't want to suck at stuff like that. So it was just interesting that, so I'm going to go through just really quick some characteristics of the Gen Xers. I've thrown a few things in here that, it, to me, that certainly would be, that makes sense. We'll run through these really quick before we really get into the crux of what we want to do today. They value a balance of work and life outside of work. Work hard, play hard. That's kind of the Gen Xers. You know, you work hard, then you can play hard. Kind of started moving away from the boomers who just work, 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 work. And when you get home, you work, work, work. And I grew up in that sort of that idea of that's kind of what you did. And so they came, the Gen Xers are like, you know what? This hard work stuff's good, but we also need to play and enjoy life. So that, that's that. So we had the next thing, just independent, resourceful, and efficient. And a lot of it had to do with being latchkey kids, where you just sort of, sort of learned how to do things and, and did those things. Uh, Dad would come home, and you'd have his engine torn apart in his car or something. <laughs> like, you're learning how to fix things. Chris was one of those guys that had his car torn apart all the time. <laughs> Put it back together, and we'd go racing down the road to see if it actually worked. Then we get pulled over by the police and start all over again. Fun days. So then there were creative. Creative is another one. The next one, technologically adept. Uh, comfortable with electronic devices, smartphones, tablets, laptops, etc. Those things begin to come around, but the, the Gen Xers like, yeah, I'll jump on that bandwagon and do that. Or maybe boomers and traditionalists were a little bit slower on that. I know a lot of people even today that were... Even my generation or, or the traditionalist generation, that the most that you might see them have is a flip phone. That's fine. My dad doesn't email. He doesn't text. He has a day timer, and it's sitting in his pocket right now. So you would know that you would find everything in his day timer to where actually my mom has jumped into the, the now generation from technology. She texts, and she'll do email and all those things. So it's good to at least have one of the two that knows how to communicate different ways, because, you know, we all adjust through that. My dad, would, he loves to just pick up the phone and call. And if you've probably received a phone call from him at some point, I'm calling you just because I want to call you. No, he always has a, some, a reason to call. So then we have flexible, adapt well to change. That's something we begin to see, because the boomers didn't necessarily like change. But the Gen Xers begin to like that. They didn't grow up with social media. But they did adapt well to it as it was coming through, so that's something we see. They're geeks. That's the one thing we, we begin to see, a lot of the geeks coming out, the geek squad. <laughs> we, like uh, Best Buy has the geek squad. But this is where YouTube, Amazon, and Google comes from, this generation. 
This is where this stuff all began to come out of these people. They thrive in casual, friendly work environments. That was kind of important to, to create more of that environment. Many of them are artists. They're artistic in different areas of their life. Here's one I kind of decided to throw in because I just remember this as a child growing up, but we have the, all these macrame things in the house. So they learn how to macrame. <laughs> Do you even... Does the young kids even know what macrame is? Or probably the millennials don't know macrame. They're all shaking their head no, they don't know. It's back in style? My goodness. Well, that's how it works. It comes around and, but macrame, look it up if you don't know what it is. But we have these macrame things hanging all over in our house and you just put plants or whatever and they're hanging from everywhere. Uh, anyway, that was just a fun one I thought I would throw in there. Good perspective on life. Take the time to think things through without being force-fed by everyone's opinion out there. So it was kind of like, okay, I'm going to figure this out. I don't, I'm not just going to go with it because somebody said. Resourceful, and I thought of this, the MacGyver. I don't know if you remember that TV show, if you were back in the MacGyver. It was great because he could build a bomb out of anything. He could, do, he could fix anything with anything. So the MacGyver mentality, you would fix things. You would, we'd call it, I would MacGyver that. I would fix it and make it work instead of replacing it. You're just going to, you're going to figure out how to fix this thing. And that was kind of that generation. And then uh, interpersonal connections, really having face-to-face conversations with people, that was important to have. And now that, and we'll talk about that more, but that becomes less and less the more we have the devices in our face where we're getting away from the, a little bit more of the face-to-face, which is probably important to make sure that we continue to do that. So I want to jump into this talking about Abraham. I'm going to give you a couple examples here, and then we're going to dive into what um, the crux of what we're going to talk about today. But, of course, we know Noah, where God was pretty frustrated with what was going on there, so he brought the flood, and so Noah, his three sons, and, and his, Noah's wife, and three sons and their wives, so they, they were the only ones. So they really started over, and God said the same thing to Noah that he said to Adam and Eve. He said, be fruitful and multiply. And so it's like, we're going to start this thing over again. And so they began to do that, and so 10 generations after Noah is this man named Abraham. Abram was what his name started out to be, and God later changed it. So we have Abraham, and we have this, I want to talk about these two generational influence stories here, and one is Abraham with his nephew Lot, and then we have the story of Abraham and his son Isaac. So I want to bring a little bit, I want to read some verses here to kind of give you a background in this, and then I'm going to talk a little bit about that. So first of all, if you, you want to look at Genesis chapter 12, starting in verse 1, the Lord said to Abram, leave your native country, your relatives and your family, father's family, go to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous, and you will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. All the families on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram departed as the Lord had instructed, and Lot, who is Abram's nephew, went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he left Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, and all his wealth, his livestock, and all the people he had taken into his household at Haran, and headed for the land of Canaan. When they arrived in Canaan, Abram traveled through the land as far as Shechem, there he set up camp beside the oak of Moreh at the time the area was inhabited by the Canaanites. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, I will give this land to your descendants. Here's the first where we see something important. And Abram built an altar there and dedicated it to the Lord who had appeared to him. Make note of that. After that, Abram traveled south and set up camp in the hill country and Bethel to the west and Ai to the east. There 
He built another altar and dedicated it to the Lord, and he worshiped the Lord. Make note of that. So we jump to chapter 13, starting there. So Abram left Egypt and traveled north into Negev along with his wife and Lot and all that they owned. So he still has his nephew with him. They have everything, all their possessions. Abram was very rich in livestock, silver and gold. From the Negev, they continued traveling by stages toward Bethel, and they pitched their tents between Bethel and Ai, where they had camped before. This was the same place where Abram built the altar, and there he worshiped the Lord again. Make note of that. Lot, who was traveling with Abram, had also become very wealthy with flocks and sheep and goats, herds and cattle and many tents. But the land could not support both Abram and Lot, with all their flocks and herds living so close together. So disputes broke out between the herdsmen of Abram and Lot. At that time, Canaanites and Pezzarites were also living in the land. Perizzites. Finally, Abram said to Lot, Let's not allow this conflict to come between us or our herdsmen. After all, we are close relatives. The whole countryside is open to you. Take your choice of any section of the land you want, and we will separate. And if you want the land to the left, then I'll take the land on the right. If you prefer the land on the right, I'll go to the left. Lot took a long look at the fertile plains of the Jordan Valley in the direction of Zoar. The whole area was well watered everywhere, like the Garden of the Lord or beautiful land of Egypt. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot chose for himself the whole Jordan Valley to the east of them. So he went there with his flock, servants, and parted company with his uncle Abram. I'm throwing in a scripture here, right here, from Proverbs 14, 12. It says, there is a path before each person that seems right, but it ends in debt. Just make a note of that. So back to verse 12. So Abram settled in the land of Canaan, and Lot moved his tents to a place near Sodom and settled among the cities of the plain. But the people of this area were extremely wicked and constantly sinned against the Lord. After Lot had gone, the Lord said to Abram, Look as far as you can, see in every direction, north and south, east and west. I am giving all this land as far as you can see to you and your descendants as a permanent possession. And I will give you so many descendants like the dust of the earth, they cannot be counted. Go and walk through the land in every direction, for I am giving it to you. So Abram moved his camp to Hebron and settled near the oak grove belonging to Mamre. There he built another altar to the Lord. Make note of that. So, stop there for a moment. God ended up destroying Sodom and Gomorrah. So we know this is the land because Lot had looked out and saw this was a beautiful land. It was like the garden. Everything was lush. Everything looked like this is amazing. And Abram gave Lot the choice to choose. You choose whatever you don't choose, I'll take. Whatever you choose, I'll take the whatever's left. And so, of course, Lot took what he looked and deemed with his own eyes, this is amazing, this is beautiful, I'm taking this. But God ended up destroying Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot, his wife, and his daughters ended up fleeing for their lives. And we know that Lot's wife ended up dying in that situation because she basically looked, because she was told, when you guys go, get out, don't look back. Get out of this hole here and get out of here don't look back well as we know lot's wife she looked back because there was probably something drawing her back like well that 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 thing that she thought was her security she looked back but that really wasn't her security well she said the bible says she turned into a pillar of salt now i will take one detour here because i have to tell a funny story because this was one of my dad's from many many years ago that reminded me of this as this pastor was preaching, he was talking about this story and how Lot's wife looked back and turned into a pillar of salt. 
Well, this gentleman comes up to the pastor after the service and said, you know, pastor, that's a great story and everything, but that doesn't really that big of a deal. He said, the other day my wife was driving the car along the road. She looked back and turned into a telephone pole. So anyway, I'm not sure that the, not sure that the guy fully understood the story. But anyway, thank you, Dad, for that story many, many years ago. Well, much remains very much in my heart. So back on track. Let's jump to chapter 19 in Genesis, verse 27 through 29. Now, this is after Abraham, Abram's name had been changed to Abraham. They had, went through the whole process of giving birth to Ishmael, then Isaac, and all of these things had happened. And so Abraham got up early that morning and hurried out to the place where he had stood in the Lord's presence. He looked out across the plain towards Sodom and Gomorrah and watched as columns of smoke rose from the cities like smoke from a furnace. So this is when God actually destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. But verse 29 says, But God had listened to Abram's request and kept Lot safe, because he, he was praying and certainly interceding. And we know, there's things you can go back and read through that. We don't have time to go in that this morning, what God was asking, or Abraham was asking God for. But God did end up granting the protection of his nephew. And so removing them from the disaster that engulfed the cities on the plain. I was thinking a little bit too, just to, uh, and this would be a whole, this is a whole other topic message for another time. But I was thinking about this idea of when we know that Abraham and Sarah had the promise of, of a son. And Abram got a little anxious and kind of jumped the jumped the promise in the sense that I need to help God in what he was doing. And so we know that Ishmael was born in result of man's doing instead of God's doing. Just a thought for us that making sure that we're not birthing Ishmaels in our life, that when God gives us a promise, he doesn't need our help getting that promise to come to pass. So let's be careful in that because the thing that God's always good at because he, he even called a blessing on Ishmael in that sense. So those things, but Isaac, the good thing about that, we can give birth to an Ishmael, but God's promise is still his promise, and he'll do it his way. And Isaac eventually is born, and that's the promise that we have. But just uh, as a side note, this, in our lives, let's be careful that we're not giving birth to an Ishmael. All right, so what I really want to get to to talk about here, and we sang this song this morning, and we'll close with this song, but about the altars, there's something about this that God really was stirring in me to share with the congregation. If you look, as we read through that, we could see that Abraham got in the habit of building altars as he went along the way. And it was really, the altars were about then, it was about sacrifice, and it was about, it cost something to build an altar. And he was stopping and taking the time to build an altar towards God, and it really had to do with his faith and trust in God. And so... As he did that, he regularly built altars along the way. We never see or read anything that Lot ever built an altar in this process. And Lot was just kind of that guy that was just hanging on for the ride and kind of on his uncle's coattail, but never really picked up something that his uncle was doing and trying to teach him and trying to pass on to that next generation was this is how we do things to honor God. It, it, it costs us something. There's something that happens, but if we continue to stay in that promise, that God's given a promise, and if we continue to do these things, then they become normal and they become part of our life, 
so that it builds faith and trust as we're moving along in the process. So we know that Abraham was faithful in building these altars, and it meant something very specific, and it was very purposeful for what was happening. It wasn't just to go out, oh, yeah, I just want to kill an animal or whatever. It was very important that he was building these altars as sacrifice. And so later on, we'll see that how that comes into play in regards to the relationship he had with Isaac. So with Lot, there was a disconnect. Lot never really picked up God's heart that God had put in Abraham, that he had given him the promise. Lot could have been a part of that too. And in fact, you could call an altar the decision that Abraham made, Abram made, at the time when he said, Lot, you pick. That's an altar. Because what he did was he built an altar in the sense, a spiritual altar saying, I'm willing to sacrifice whatever it is because God's purpose. I know he's already promised me something and I don't need to help him. I don't need to be the one to pick. So he allowed his nephew to pick. Well, it obviously turned out that his nephew picked wrong, but at the time it seemed like, that's Abraham. Why would you give up that you should, you're, you're entitled to that. It's your generation. You're, you're, the, you're the one who has the, the authority here to do that. But yet he gave way to that. He gave it and said, you know what? I trust God in this. I'm building an altar right here because this is a, seemingly a sacrifice, but it worked out because he had trusted God all along in building, building these altars. So we see this happen. And so if we simply submit to God in our offering to him, offering ourselves to God, we prosper spiritually, we do. It, that's, that's a byproduct of building at altars and submitting to God. And, and there's things that we have to do where we're giving up something. It costs us something. When we're building an altar, it costs. It's not it's something that doesn't, that doesn't, it's not meaningful. It's very meaningful. But ultimately, it, what happens is it, it paves the way for God to really bless and to do, for his promise to be fulfilled in our life. Yes. And so if we try to go through life trying to avoid those altar moments, like, yeah, I'm not willing to give up. I'm not going to bow my knee right now to, to this, to God and allow God. I, I think I, I'm going to take control of this situation because I just think I need to get through this and then maybe I'll submit to God. No, we need to make sure because if we fail to have those altar moments in our life, we won't grow spiritually. We, won't, we will stay in that same place. We'll, we'll become Lot in a way. Lot, Lot was a good person in the sense of, and God had things for Lot, but Lot never picked up what his uncle was really putting down and laying down for. These are things that are important. They're, critical pro, they're a critical process in life and spiritually and in every aspect of our life. So how do we know when we're, Facing an altar. I think simply it's, a, it's about any situation you find yourself in that it's going to cost you something. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's really an altar situation. And that you can't, if you get in a situation, you really probably can't change it. Maybe there's somebody who said something about you, said something negative, lied about you, or you found yourself in a situation where your boss treated you wrong and, and you just, you, you don't do it. Well, it's time to build an altar. It's time to, I'm not going to take control of this. I'm not going to try to get back of this person. I'm not going to try. Lord, I trust you in this situation. I'm building an altar of sacrifice because my faith and trust is in you. And so we take the time and stop to do that. And as we get in the habit of doing that, God begins to become faithful in us. Because in a lot of these situations, we're powerless. But if we come before him, we build that altar, it's good. And so 
There's always a, a way, though, of, e- of evading the unpleasantness of what we would deem to be unpleasant at an altar, because we'll find ways to wiggle out of it. But we have to be careful that we not opt out of God's will because of our selfish nature or what we want. Because his will and his promise, I'm telling you that if God's given you a promise, you have to go through altar experiences. You have to go through those moments. Because if you don't, you're not going to see that promise fulfilled. And so when every time Abraham, or Abraham got to that place of understanding what it was, he built an altar. He built an altar. He sacrificed. So this was very consistent in his life. And it was very important in his life. And I, I couldn't help but think about Mary, mother of Jesus. This is a woman who built an altar when she knew that what was going to happen to her son, it was prophesied. Simeon prophesied, your soul's going to be pierced with a sword. Your soul, you are going to be hurting, woman. <laughs> when Jesus was taken in the temple to be dedicated, when Mary and Joseph took him in there, there was, and Simeon had, there was a fulfillment of prophecy that happened because he lived to see the Messiah because that's what, that was what was going to happen and so he had told him, in fact, let me just read a couple of verses here in Luke. This is not on your, up on the screen, but Luke chapter 2, 34 and 35, it said, Then Simeon blessed them, and he said to Mary, the baby's mother, This child is destined to cause many in Israel to fall and many others to rise. He has been sent as a sign from God, but many will oppose him. As a result, the deepest thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your very soul. Now, she ended up living out that moment to where she had to stand back and watch her son go through the pain, the suffering, the scourging, the whipping, the nails driven into him, and watch him be pierced and watch him die. That was her altar. She could have jumped in, and she could have certainly had the influence somehow to at least wreak havoc on that situation to protect her son as any mother would do. But she stood back and said, this is my altar moment. (laughs) Wow. This is my, I'm sacrificing for the promise of God, whatever that is. I'm willing to make this my altar moment. Can you imagine? But those are the things we have to in life as we're preparing uh, through life and going through life. We need to make sure that when there is a moment that we recognize this is an altar moment that we do it and we don't try to short circuit it. We don't try to scoot around it, take a shortcut, whatever it is. I mean, Mary, she had every right to be angry and upset. Certainly did. Like, this is not fair, God. She could have devised a way of somehow, but she didn't. She built an altar. This is what an altar experience does for us. Sometimes it pierces our soul. We have to stand back and go, wow, this hurts. This was really painful. I don't like what this feels like. But if we understand and truly trust God, and our faith is in God as to what is his, what is he accomplishing here? Because what did he tell Abraham? He said, I promise to make your name great. Your descendants are going to be like the sand of the sea. You'll become famous. You're going to have all of this stuff, everything. That's great to hear, and those are good promises. And God's promised us a lot of things. But then all of a sudden, you get to those points where this is an altar moment. Abraham had those moments, and he was obedient through the process. We see that, and it can be agonizing. Time slows way down when you're on the altar. It does. I mean, it's like, God, can you hurry up and get me off this? I don't like this sacrificing. I don't like what's going on. But he has a purpose. 
we don't want to circumvent it. We don't want to get off that altar too soon. We have to be careful in that and trust him until he says it's done. I completed this. Get up and, and keep moving. Because of what happens, we end up living by the flesh instead of by the spirit. And our flesh tells us this is what we need. And the spirit is saying something different. So when it comes to generation influence, <laughs> are we willing to build an altar for what we are desperately holding onto that may be blocking God's plan? Are we willing to build an altar and say, you know what, my thinking on that may not be what God, I'm holding on to this because I think this is what God should do. Are we willing to build an altar and say, God, what is the better for what you're trying to do? What's the better for your plan? What is it you're asking me to do? Now, to conclude, I want to take us to uh, Isaac here real quick, and this is to, to bring a different uh, perspective on this generation influence and how this worked and why it worked the way it did. So really quick, Genesis chapter 22, starting in verse 2. So this is where God's telling Abraham, he said, take your son, your only son, yes, Isaac, whom you love so much, and go to the land of Moriah. Go and sacrifice him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will show you. The next morning, Abraham got up early, saddled his donkey, and took two of his servants with him, along with his son Isaac. Then he chopped uh, wood for the fire and burnt offering and set, it out, set out for a place God had told him all about. On the third day of their journey, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. Stay here with the donkey, Abraham told the servants. The boy and I will travel a little farther. We will worship there, and then we will come right back. It's interesting, because if you look at this, Isaac had experience of watching his father continuously build altars through his life. He watched his father trust and have faith in God in every situation. Isaac saw it. Isaac knew Okay, we're going to do this. His trust was not only in God, but also in his father. There was a generational thing that was going on that Isaac picked up something from his father that Lot never picked up from his uncle. And there was something about that place of altar and whatever was going to happen there, we're fully trusting God of the outcome. You ask yourself, first of all, how in the world could Abraham ever come to that place of thinking that he's going to sacrifice his son, for one, because uh, as fathers, we wouldn't do that, or mothers, we, we, we just couldn't see that. And how in the world could a son ever come to that place of saying, I'm willing to get on the altar because I trust. I've seen God do something over and over and over again in altar situations with my dad. Lot watched those things. He didn't learn anything from he ended up in a bad situation, but there's something here about Isaac and watching that there's some things that are very critical in our generations that we look at and say, this is critical, and the reason why this is done this way is because it's part of God's promise and fulfilling of God's promise. So Isaac, he trusted the God of his father in this situation. He could have said, no way, Dad. <laughs> Your generation is out of touch. Dad, your generation, this is so, I'm not submitting to this. I'm not doing, Dad, you're crazy. But no, he, he realized there was something there. Yeah. He was used to seeing altars. What are we doing as a generation to demonstrate those altars to the next generation and the importance of those? So I asked the worship team if you'd come. We're going to sing this song that we sang earlier, Altars. And I want to open up the altar this morning, and I think it would be very fitting Maybe it's been a long time since you have built an altar in the sense of had that moment or that time where you sensed God was asking you something. Maybe you skirted it or didn't do it. But I believe God is asking us 
to get to that place, this, this, as a generation of all of us, that we're building altars that are setting examples of this is who God is and this is the God I trust, this is the God I have faith in. And having those others look, not looking at us, but looking at the outcome of what is that, those promises that God's given, because he's given many promises. And we can see those promises fulfilled. In fact, we read in scripture later on, Isaac did identically the same thing. God promised to Isaac the same thing he promised to his dad. And then Isaac builds an altar. He said, this is what I know. I'm, I'm willing to sacrifice whatever it is because I know ultimately there's a promise God has that he wants to fulfill. And I believe that that's the case for all of us here today. If you stand with, with me this morning, and as we sing this song, and maybe you want to just come to the altar this morning and as just giving yourself as a sacrifice in, in, a, in a sense, an offering to the Lord. Say, Lord, I'm willing to sacrifice whatever my agenda is, whatever it is that I think. Lord, I'm asking that you give me your agenda. What is it that you're asking me to do, God, to affect this generation, to affect those people in my community, to allow them to see your presence flow in me and through me? whatever that is. And so as we sing this song, you're welcome to come here. You don't have to, but I I think there's something significant about just breaking through that thing of just the enemy. A lot of times he likes to just sort of, oh, you need to just kind of stay here. But I think for some people, just coming up here is building an altar. You know, and and there's a statement that's made in that sense. So whatever the Lord speaks to you, I'd like to respond to that. And maybe you're here today and you, you haven't experienced the goodness of God. Maybe you haven't experienced what it is to have Jesus Christ as Lord of your life. And if that's you today, we'd love to pray for you. Maybe you've walked away from him and you once knew him and, and you're, you're, you come to that place saying, man, I want to get back into the family of God. Whatever your situation is, we want to pray for you today. But certainly come and, and let, let's spend a few moments building altar this morning, being in his presence. Amen. As we sing this. Thank you for listening to City Life Church Podcast. 